Podcast, the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Elizabeth Moeller, and today I'm joined by Nicholas Scott Mitchell and our producer, Kira Nadine. Hi, Nicholas. How are you? I'm great. How about you? I am great as well. Thank you for coming on our show today. Wondering if you can just kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, and maybe if you want to share a bit about your research. Sure. So I am the electrical and computer engineering student at Western. I did my master's there, and I'm currently continuing on with my PhD. I love sports as well as pretty much anything electronics. So kind of two differing fields kind of merging into one a little bit. But uh, I would say that my main work is inside of cameras and all the electronics associated with it. So I am very uh, involved inside of that. But as a side project, I also work on uh, cubic satellites, which is a whole different field. So those are my two main areas that I'm researching. So you mentioned cameras and what's inside of them. So that's a big field and, you know, a very relevant field now with drones and all kinds of surveillance technology. So tell us a little bit more about what that looks like. So yeah, the the main stuff that I work on with cameras is I take them out to farm fields and I image the farm fields to see if there's any diseases inside of them. So what we'll do is we'll uh, hook up the camera to the drone safely enough so it doesn't fall to the ground and smash to pieces. And then as you fly it over, we'll capture a bunch of images. And then at the end of the flight, we'll throw all those images together into one big map and then tell the farmer where they need to go in order to fix a crop or to isolate a crop if it has diseases. Whoa, so drones, like I've seen those. I've even I've even seen, uh, you know, Amazon delivering packages via drone. So tell us a little bit about the drone and the camera and how you get it up there and let it make it stay up there. Yeah, so pretty much, uh, we have two different types of drones that we had originally designed this thing for. One was called a fixed wing, which was, if you almost think of like one of those stealth bomber type things, it would be like a miniature version of that where you'd actually launch it from your hand and they would actually fly the firm field that way. And then there is also the quadruped, which is the, uh, I would say similar to a helicopter, but with four rotors. So four of those spin spinning blades. Um, we typically use the quadruped in order to fly our camera just because it is a little bit more stable and the images don't turn out quite as shaky as the other ones. But how we actually attached it is pretty interesting too. So we 3D print all our materials at uh, Western University. And from that, we hook up the camera to the drone um, using the 3D printed parts. And then they usually have some specific ports that we can attach to. And once it's all good to go, we attach the GPS unit, and then we turn the camera on to take images every one second or so. And at that point, we trust that the drone doesn't crash, which it has in the past. (laughs) So you got my interest because I've seen those drones flying around. I saw one this winter in the park, and it was huge and scary, and I was just hoping it wasn't going to crash. And so, like, how do you prevent it from crashing and what if it does crash okay so typically we we are communicating with the uh the drone via some what looks like an xbox controller to be perfectly honest it's very uh it's a very sleek looking design for a controller but it has a massive antenna in the end so it's a little like makeshift that way 
And this antenna is sending the, uh, the commands to the drone in order to fly a certain path. If for some reason the antenna goes down or there's some sort of interference and the drone doesn't have any directions, funky stuff can happen. Mm, like what kind of funky stuff? I think the most exciting thing that's happened so far is they went completely sideways and then just fell Whoa. to the ground. <laughs> so that, yeah, neither drone nor camera survived that test flight. Oh my goodness. Hopefully no people were in the path of that test flight. So do do like farmers like just sign up and say like, yeah, I kind of dig in having a drone come out and check out my fields or like, how do you connect with these farmers? So yeah, ANL Laboratories Canada is somebody that Western has partnered with on this project and their entire business model is to check out farmers and farmers fields and greenhouses in order to give them the information that they need in a timely fashion. So they are usually our link towards the farmer and they will sign up with them if they want a almost like an expert field person to come to their field and check it out for them. I'm thinking it's like a drone audit. So your work, so you're hoping to kind of look at disease. So are there common diseases that you're seeing in, in farmers fields and how do those get eradicated? Um, that, that is a good question. My work kind of ends at the intersection of where I had created the map and passed it to the farmer in a sense. So gotcha. for diseases that does happen, I can't say for sure. That's mostly ANL's expertise area. I usually look at the images and pass it along to them. So I unfortunately can't answer that one as well as I could. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, tell us about the maps. Um, how do those get from drone to camera to the farmer's inbox, I assume, emailed, but yeah, tell us about the maps. Yeah, so pretty much what happens with like a, the mapping function is that we would capture all the images at the time of flight, um, afterwards, we would do a check to make sure that everything was okay via the log file. So sometimes it is possible that the camera skips an image every once in a while. So we'd have to take that into consideration. Um, once we have all the images inside of probably like a file folder on Windows or something like that, we would then go to a program which is called Pix4D. And this Pix4D software takes every single image and then stitches them together. The interesting part about that is it uses, I guess, the mutual information, so the overlap between the images to kind of put them together. Very interesting. And so a while ago, when we were chatting two minutes ago, you mentioned 3D printing. Yep. And how, how does that fit in? Because when I think of 3D printing, I actually think of like being able to feel images that have been printed and actually manipulate them. So not quite as exciting as that. That would be very exciting. That would but... be very cool. That would be like drone gone wild. <laughs> exactly. But what we use a 3D printing for is that we made a bunch of printed circuit boards for our camera and all of our camera electronics. And we can't just attach these circuit boards to a drone directly. We need some sort of interfacing structure, almost like your phone, right? Mm -hmm. Except for we would 3D print it rapidly instead. So it would be more the house for the camera rather than, I guess, the main camera component itself. Gotcha. Okay. And so the drones, like how long do they stay up in the air for and how high do they go? Like when I saw that drone a few months ago, it was a little low for my comfort level. Um, that one really depends. Um, typically, depending on the airspace, the 
they have to check with, oh, I forget the governing or organization, but there's an app that they can check if there's going to be a plane uh, roving by around that time and their height might be limited by it. Typically, the primo height for us to capture more farm field we go up higher is about 100 meters. But sometimes we have to go down to 85 or 65, depending if there's somebody else occupying the airspace too. And for how long? Um, depending on how big the farm field is, it could be between 15 to 20 minutes before it has to land again. And then we would swap out the battery. So it could go on for almost an hour, to be honest. But 15 to 20 minutes is about the length of time we can do a single shot with the, uh, the quadruped. And so what have, you know, just broad strokes, uh, what have you been finding in your, your research so far? Can you kind of tell us some broad strokes? Yeah, so uh, the, the most important thing that I've been doing on my research is that uh, there is a very interesting phenomenon inside the world, and specifically Canada, called clouds. And when we're taking images with our camera, they're very sensitive to changes in light, especially since we had to calibrate all the images. So what I've been working on is a sensor that detects the light above the drone and then fixes the images afterwards so that all of the images are well calibrated and aren't thrown off by the changes in sunlight due to clouds. Wow, very interesting. And, and I would imagine, you know, that would be particularly useful if you start off and it's really bright and sunny and then it gets cloudy, that would really change the images. And so what have, what have you found so far? Uh, I would say that Canada has like three different types of days. And okay. my, my favorite day as somebody that doesn't like to do a lot of work is the sunny day because then nothing changes. The partially cloudy days are the most interesting research days though, because that's when my sensor is actually useful. Those days tend to have wild swings inside of sunlight. I would say if it started very sunny and it was like 100%, it might swing all the way down to 20% um, in a change. So it'd have a difference of 80% of the absolute illumination. And then the purely cloudy days are also not as interesting, but are also not as important for drones because typically during the very cloudy days, it also might rain and we can't fly the drone or the camera in the rain either. So I typically stick to the sunny and the partially sunny days. So drones are not waterproof. <laughs> no, I've, I've seen some amazing technology with phones nowadays that are waterproof. Unfortunately, drones do not do good in high wind or high water. And okay, so the sensor, you know, you mentioned clouds and I agree, you know, we, we have, um, you know, very seldom a totally bright blue sky sunny day with no clouds. But do you think your sensor would also work in snowy conditions where the light changes because of uh, snow on the ground? Yeah, that's a good, that, that is a good question. The snow on the ground is something that we'd actually want to detect rather than correct. So I don't think it would necessarily work exactly like that, but there could be some pretty interesting applications, especially if you go to like a mine where the light would constantly change as you go throughout a mine. If you wanted to image some of the rocks to detect the materials, that would also be quite possible. Yeah, so you kind of just made me think about my next question here. So, you know, you've developed this sensor. It sounds like it's really applicable around sun and cloud. Um, 
what other what other applicability do you see for this? You mentioned the mine. Yep. So mines are definitely one. Then there is the uh, the agriculture field, which is quite important as well. So all those detecting diseases. You might not just fly a drone uh, over a farm field. You might put it inside of a greenhouse as well. And if the greenhouse has like a glass ceiling, it will still correct for the light inside of there. The other, I guess, important application that people are currently looking at too is um, Arctic uh, mapping. So if you go up north, it might be pretty important for them to detect snow versus not snow. So that's something that these cameras are also used for. And then these cameras, I kind of alluded to it, is uh, very much into the detecting certain types of rocks as well and minerals. And that is not only good for mines on Earth, but also in outer space and asteroids and lunar mapping. That is also kind of an area that this could be used. Now, Nick, at the very beginning of the show, when we started chatting, you mentioned uh, briefly your research, but you also mentioned another kind of project you're working on with satellites. Would you like to share a bit about that? Yeah, so the, the satellite project is a whole different twist on things. Funny enough, it does also involve a camera, not that I'm working on that specific area, but uh, I am part of the CubeSat project at Western, which is called Ukbik One. Um, we're currently partnered with uh, Nunavut Arctic College on this uh, endeavor, and we're working towards a grant that was given to us by the CSA to make a satellite, which is about two units big, and a unit is approximately the size of a Rubik's Cube. So. You, if you imagine two Rubik's cubes kind of stacked on top of each other, that's about the size of our satellite that we're building. And so you're you're working. Um, could you at the very beginning you just mentioned an acronym? Would you mind spelling that out, or or not spelling it out, but just kind of uh, what does the acronym stand for? So Ukpik One is spelled U K K P P I K. Sorry, U K P I K, and it stands for Snowy Owl. Oh, okay. I believe it is the anecdotic word for it. So. Oh, okay. All right. I knew that. I know that's not a familiar word for me, and so I thought maybe others listening might uh, might have the same reaction. Okay. So with the satellite, sort of, what's the the hope uh, with the goal of the project you're working on? So there is two goals for this project. The first one is to train students at Western, whether it be graduate, undergraduate. Uh, students to actually build satellites. That is the, the primary goal for us. And then the secondary one is that we got two VR cameras from Canadensis that they're providing to us in kind. And what these will do, they'll place them on opposite sides of the structure and we'll try to create a 3D image so we can put it inside of an Oculus Rift when we send these images back to Earth. So you can actually see yourself in space almost. Is that what an Oculus Rift is? Ability to see yourself in space? It's um, it's one of those like VR type headsets where you can see all the way around you and completely immerse yourself in it. And so um, you mentioned that one of the goals is to kind of train um, Western students on sort of using um, satellites. Is this a partnership that is part of your research or a side project? So this is currently a side, a side project for me, um, but this is technically a grant from the CSA in hopes that the Canadian Space Agency can develop more talent at the university level. Wow. 
So that's more of what their goal is. Our goal is to make sure that all the students, like, funny enough, space industry is very good for training people to work in an interdisciplinary fashion in engineering, since mm -hmm. there is typically the electrical team, which has to make sure that the cube side does not run out of power. Then there's a the communication team, which says we need to get our data back down to earth because there's no plug out there in space. And then the structural team, which is from um, usually mechanical students, has to make sure that our structure one interfaces with the, uh, the deployer on the um, International Space Station, but also does not vibrate apart when we launch it to space on a, like a rocket. So there's a lot of different areas that are kind of pulled into a single satellite system that really helps the students learn how to communicate with each other, which is the strangest thing for an engineer having to communicate. It's not math, it's very <laughs> different field. So I'm kind of curious, like how you got involved with this project, because I know your other project you mentioned was around like the camera and drones and how, what, uh, what piqued your interest in this project and how did you get involved? That's a good question. I, I was an eager undergraduate student back in my day and I had done a um, undergraduate uh, research uh, grant under my current professor, Jayshree Sabranathan. And she had applied for the grant with the CSA with Matt Cross as well. He was a old postdoc who's now moved on to mission control. And when they got the grant, they were like, hey, we got it we need students. So they took a bunch of trial students on and I was one of them included during that summer. I think I was just finished my fourth year, not quite started my master. I was kind of that weird transition stage and I had some free time. So I was like, hey, satellite design sounds pretty cool. Why don't we try that and see how I like it? And then I did. So I continued on for the next two and a half years. <laughs> okay. So Nick, you know, you're, sounds like you have a lot of, um, a lot of projects on the go. What's, um, you know, what are, do you have any plans in terms of what, what are the, what's next for you, do you think? Are you hoping to get into teaching eventually? Are you hoping to get into working in the space industry? What are your thoughts? Good question. I would say after trying out, I guess, space industry, and then also doing a lot of embedded work, my undergraduate degree was also in communication electronics so that would be like more like bell rogers planning and stuff like that working on 5g i would i would say my favorite area and maybe i'm partial is the sensor i worked on with the uh the fixing light for drones so i will likely look for something in that lower level electrical hardware work maybe with bell maybe with another big conglomerate Sounds mm -hmm. like a good time. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I really, I think the the um, the sensor. It sounds like you've described a lot of applicabilities outside of just using it for for light. Like you described the mining and and also um, being able to use it um, in looking at at um, space. And so, do you are you hoping to do any kind of um, publication on the work that you've done so far, or do you have any conferences in the works that you feel comfortable sharing? Um, yeah, good question. Honestly, I have written one conference paper 
on some of the image processing work that I that I've done specifically for um, edge detection and getting the calibration procedure up and ready. And mm -hmm. then the goal for this summer is to capture enough data so that I can uh, submit a uh, journal paper as like the culminating I did a kind of moment with my thesis. Yeah. That's and that's incredible when you when you reach that moment of, um, you know, being able to put everything together and put it in a, a package and and share it out with the world, which is is really exciting, um, for sure. I think it's pretty exciting. It's also a little scary, you know. Other people yeah. can see the work that you've done and critique it, but that's always good too. I think it's an exciting fear. That's true. It's an exciting fear, absolutely. And so, you know, just. Um, Going, going back to um, the, the sensor that you've developed, I never asked you, but could you describe it? Like how big is it? What does it look like? Like I'm trying to get a picture of it in my mind. So I would say if you look at the back of your phone, you'll typically see a bunch of the lenses on there. I would say that the lens is way bigger than it and the <laughs> the actual unit is a little bit more square and cube like if i had to compare it to an, a rubik's cube because that's my unit of measurement nowadays okay would, i'm sensing a theme <laughs> Nick. i'm sensing a theme <laughs> yeah of course i would say it's about a 0 0.5 unit uh sensor rather than a full rubik's cube about half of it Okay, so I, now I have a little bit of more of a sense of, of what this thing, what this thing looks like. And in terms of just the, the work that you're doing now, um, have you found that you've been able to still continue that through the pandemic? Um, I would imagine drones can very easily social distance. Um, so have you been able to, to continue on with, with the work you're doing in the same way you were hoping? Oh, yeah, I would say yes, work has always gone on. I don't think COVID can stop too much of the work I'm doing. However, it did have a weird transition period where I had like half of my lab equipment inside of my room and I was just down here trying to, at the time, fix some of the cameras that had been broken from previous test flights. Uh -huh. uh, yes, the dropping so, drone. <laughs> the dropping drone does create problems. So I was down here with, I would say, a very hot and busy room with all the electrical equipment running. And then once that was done, though, then it was all sunshine and rainbows and sometimes a little bit of clouds for the thesis data. Well, we wait. Well, we want we want those mostly cloudy days. We don't want too much too much sunshine and rainbows, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so, okay. So it sounds to me like the the actual flight is there's a lot of test flights from the sounds of things. So are the cameras like pretty like durable and able to withstand that, or do you just buy and an input cameras that are pretty um, inexpensive to replace? So the cameras that we built are pretty special in the sense that they have not just a single camera on it, it's like five all tied together into one system. And I would say that, yeah, we do a lot of test flights, but the more important part is that we also do a lot of maintenance work. So you have to make sure that all these cameras, we clean the lenses, we dust off all the dirt on them. They're the best treated cameras in the world. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and I was wondering too, like with the the idea behind the um, the drone, like how do you how do you make sure how do you do a safety check? It's a good question. Uh, when when we first hook up the camera, we first turn the camera on to make sure that there's no fires. I think that's the first safety check. That probably is a good thing. Yep. The second safety check is to we have a lot of wires running around with all of our different sensors. We have to make sure that none of these wires are in the path of the spinning blades on these helicopters, right? Because that could also make the drone crash and ruin the camera too. So that would be the second one. The third one is then to stand away from all of these pieces of equipment, mm -hmm. start anything if you have to. And then we let the automatic drone flight software and the controller do the rest of the work once everybody's been clear. Yeah, so you just, you know, you kind of made me think everyone's been clear. So where where do these test flights happen? Like, is there like a special drone landing pad at Western that I don't know about for these drone flights, these test flights to take place? So good question. We go around to different farm fields, so we don't have a fancy landing pad or anything like that. We find a relatively flat area and then let her go. Literally. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Nick, do you have, um, you know, anything else you want to share? We're, we're kind of getting close to the end of time. Um, it flew by, no pun intended, but I'm wondering <laughs> if you have any, um, any other thoughts about your research or just in general that you want to share with our audience today. I would say that the most important thing that I've learned throughout my research, maybe like a little bit of advice for anybody coming in yeah, is try to collaborate as much as possible and getting in on an industry project is definitely something that I recommend now that I've been on two and starting my third. It definitely opens up a lot of industry contacts and you get to meet a lot of people. You can never really go wrong with getting involved in too many projects as long as you don't wear yourself thin and that you still take care of yourself and go to the gym and be a healthy human being. I love that. That advice is so good. Get involved, collaborate. If you can, jump on an industry project. Uh, take care of yourself. Like so well said and very, you know, relevant for what we know is a, a, a market where a lot of us in academe won't end up in academe, will end up in industry. So thank you, Nick. Very, uh, very true. Wondering just if you could share with us, if you'd like, uh, a website for your department or an email where folks can contact you to learn more about the work you're doing. Yeah, so if you want to check out the uh, the Western CubeSat GitHub, we have a wiki on there, which is pretty nice and graphical that you can check out. And then there's also the electrical engineering uh, graduate uh, website that is also pretty good. Check it out. And then as for an email that you can contact me at, nmitch6 is probably the best place that you can contact me. Of course, at uwo.ca at the end. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nick. So my name's Elizabeth Moeller. I've been your host today. We're here with Nicholas Scott Mitchell, as well as Hira Nadine being our producer. And you have been listening to GradCast, a podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. If you want to listen to this episode or more episodes like this, you can check us out on Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. You can pop on our web website, check us out on YouTube. Maybe you've been inspired and you want to talk about your research. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at radcastradio at gmail.com. 